Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. On today's menu, after the conventions, an update on the presidential election. Then, my interview with an expert on how states can better manage the economic ups and downs of fracking. And finally, in our regular coffee break, meet a new expert in our Africa Growth Initiative. The Republican and Democratic parties have had their conventions. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are the nominees. With about three months to Election Day, what's happening in the presidential election? Here's senior fellow John Hudak to explain. Over the past two weeks, Republicans and Democrats held their national conventions, officially nominating Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton for president. The two conventions could not have been more different. The Republican convention seemed to be a series of unforced errors between Melania Trump's plagiarized speech and Ted Cruz's refusal to endorse Trump and message to Republican delegates to vote their conscience. While Republicans were successful in criticizing Clinton over her emails and server and the terrorist attacks in Benghazi, discord overshadowed some very powerful speeches from Donald Trump's children, Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka Trump, and from the candidate himself. The Republican convention also shined light on the lack of institutional support Mr. Trump is receiving, as many high-profile Republicans, from the two former Republican presidents uh, to many of Mr. Trump's primary opponents, and even the governor of the state in which the convention was held, Ohio's John Kasich, stayed away. While Trump embraces his outsider status and highlights the lack of establishment support is a good thing, the convention made it clear. Donald Trump will have to go it alone in the race for the White House. Many of the surrogates that other Republican candidates would have had campaigning for them had they gotten the nomination have distanced themselves from Trump, refused to endorse him, and will not work on his behalf. For a campaign that's understaffed, underfunded, lacks organization, and struggles to stay on message each, each day, the absence of party superstars will mean Trump's road to the White House will be as rocky as the four days leading up to his acceptance of the nomination. Democrats held their convention in Philadelphia, and the event was a resounding success. Democratic Party heavy hitters from President Obama, Vice President Biden, Bill Clinton, Michelle Obama, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Cory Booker, and a host of A-list celebrities all came out to give powerful speeches on behalf of Hillary Clinton. While the convention was not without drama, Sanders' most ardent supporters, often called the Bernie or Bust crowd, booed, hissed, heckled, and protested many of the speakers, they amounted to a minority of delegates who ultimately had very little effect on the overall convention. Democrats also laid out a different approach to campaigning, in what was likely to be a signal of the coming 100 days. Clinton and her allies painted a picture of a healthy, robust America that's, quote, already great, and promised to carry on the work President Obama has done and improve things for those who still need help. Republicans talked about a gloomier America, where eight years of Democratic rule has hurt the economy, the social fabric of America, and has led to a breakdown in law and order. Republicans spoke to dissatisfied Americans, disaffected workers, and even dejected Sanders supporters in arguing that if they're unhappy with where America is right now, Trump will be their change agent. The next hundred days will be a brutal battle, battle for the White House. Republicans will focus their venom on Obama and his record and Clinton and her scandals. Democrats will praise the work of the president, speak about the historic nature of the Clinton candidacy, talk policy specifics, something the Trump campaign has largely avoided thus far, and try to convince Americans that Trump is ill-prepared to be president. In the next three months, Americans have to choose which version of America they think they live in, one mired in darkness or one doing well, and ultimately pick between a candidate who promises change and one who promises to stay the course. I'm John Hudak, and that's what's happening on the campaign trail. 
We'll have a lot more election content in upcoming episodes. My guest in the studio today is Mark Miro, Senior Fellow and Policy Director of the Metropolitan Policy Program. He manages the program's public policy analysis and leads research projects on such topics as regional economic competitiveness, advanced industries, and manufacturing. He has recently co-authored with Devashree Saha a report on how states that are heavily involved with fracking can better manage the boom-bust economic cycle associated with this type of oil and gas development and how they can build more sustainable and dynamic economies. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Fred. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. So we're talking about fracking, but not really from the point of view of, you know, is it bad for the environment? Is it good for the environment? Although we might touch on that a little bit. We're going to talk about um, the boom in hydraulic fracturing, fracking, and the bust cycle that you've identified, you and uh, Devashri have identified in this new report. Uh, tell us first, what is this boom-bust economic cycle that you identify? Yeah, totally. Thanks. And I would like to acknowledge my co-author, Devashri, who's great. So, so okay. So, first, hydraulic fracking, uh, fracturing or fracking is essentially the fruition of decades of technology uh, experimentation that in which uh, industry, uh, drilling industry, figure out how to jam huge amounts of water at high pressure underground and to force out in new ways oil and gas resources from otherwise inaccessible or hitherto unaccessible uh, uh, rock formations, uh, you know, especially in the shale areas of the country. Uh, it's made it possible to extract large volumes of oil and gas, really a lot of oil and gas from places where that have either been played out or have been unreachable. Uh, this created a huge boom for the during the 2000s. And in some ways, it is the you know American ingenuity coming to fruition. Uh, but a place like Pennsylvania, North Dakota, Texas, um, you know, other parts of the West, uh, you know, really uh, had boomtown springing up. The whole resource boom deal going down again at a huge uh, uh, level, uh, and then. Pumping and shipping massive volumes of oil and gas into global markets, uh, and with oil reaching a hundred bucks uh, a barrel in 2010, you know the whole world economy booming. Uh, there is a huge appetite for a huge amount of American oil and gas, and that meant kaching for a lot of places across the American landscape. But now it's gone bust. Yeah, um, you know. I mean, you know, many states enjoyed exciting economic windfalls here, jobs, tax collections, the whole nine yards. We can go into that. Unfortunately, though, what goes up uh, often comes down in the energy sector. I mean, th this is deeply American. You know, I think we all feel these these patterns uh, uh, from, from history, uh, thanks in part to a glut of U.S. production, in part, uh, along with the world economic slump. But don't underestimate, there was so much oil and gas coming out that we almost created the circumstances of the glut through our own success in pumping this stuff. Uh, but the shale boom uh, went bust quite abruptly uh, in 2014. Uh, too much supply, too little demand has led to hundreds of rigs being shut down, thousands of layoffs. Again, classic boom and bust, 
uh, cycles playing out here. Uh, quite rapidly, uh, major economic dislocations in states like Pennsylvania, North Dakota, West Virginia, uh, as well as other states, Texas to a lesser degree, and we can talk about why that is. But to give you a feel, number of U.S. oil and gas rigs uh, plunged from 1,811 in January 2015 to 489 at the beginning of this March. So 70%, 73% crash in the number of rigs, which is a good way to get a handle on what's going on where. You and you and Debussy in this report uh, extend your analysis out really far on the impact that the, that um, that crash in the number of rigs has. I mean, it's not just the the people who work on the rigs. You talk about the impact it has uh, in a way downstream to pharmacies and grocery stores. I mean, this, these regional economic impacts are pretty enormous. Can you talk a little bit more totally. about that? Totally. Um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think sometimes we think you know, ex, you know. Resource exploitive uh, activities go on way outside of town in the desert in the middle of nowhere are sort of isolated. Actually, this is a classic lesson of how economies work, how supply chains work, job multipliers, and how economic disruptions or benefits ripple across you know, the whole economy and certainly at the state level. Uh, a study from Rice University uh, that we've done some work to uh, you know, draw out uh, as estimated employment impact of putting one drilling rig into service creates 37 jobs right away and 224 jobs in the long run. So look, I just said you know, uh, 1,322 rigs closed. You can do the math, uh, which is what we did, and you know this is the potential to the loss of anywhere from two hundred twenty-six thousand to three hundred thousand jobs. And yes, that is direct people working working directly on the rig, then people working in oil services companies around that, all the suppliers of chemicals, uh, the water hauling trucks. And so on, and going right out, filtering through these communities, you know, the boomtown communities around them, uh, and as you say, pharmacy and grocery bills, uh, uh, what have you, you know, uh, hotel bills, all of these things registering, you know, a serious economic impact. And part of that, you know, and then this hits states. Right. So how does it state hit state governments? governments? I mean, right off, if if – First, directly, just uh, there, there are uh, this depresses tax revenues, just as economic activity is depressed. But many uh, states have uh, so-called severance taxes, direct taxes on uh, uh, oil and gas removed from the ground. So, to the extent uh, that uh, oil and gas removal slows as the bus sets in. Uh, you states lose significant imp inputs of uh, revenue that they become uh, addicted to in certain ways. So then now we're now we're sending ripples through the state budget. I want right? to go back to that term severance tax. I learned in your report that the word severance tax means literally a tax on severance, uh, severing uh, oil and gas from the earth. I didn't know that. Um, so now you have um, an economic hit to the workers and the whole industry that ripples out. You have an economic hit to state governments uh, 
Um, the state governments deal with this in different ways. I think this relates to the resource curse that you talked about. Texas, for example, is different than, say, Pennsylvania. Can you uh, talk about the difference in how different states um, have felt the impact of this bust? I mean, first, I'll just say right off, uh, these aren't small hits in many states. These are big hits. Uh, uh, Alaska, an oil state, you know, so it's a little less tied to fracking, but tied to the that those market and price uh, oscillations we talked about, uh, received no revenue from its severance in 2015 uh, uh, compared to $5 billion in 2013. $5 billion out of the public fiscal uh, base there uh, in a two-year period. North Dakota lost $1.5 billion in between just 2014 to 2015. Four percent budget cut right there, and then Oklahoma had to cut its state spending seven percent because of these cuts. So these oscillations in revenue uh, tie into something called the resource curse, which is about how economies work, and it's this idea that uh, repeated booms in extractive in industries actually can stunt the development the diversification into other high-skill or higher-tech sources of prosperity. You know, this is a fortunate uh, – it's a good fortune that can actually harm the economy in certain ways. And I think we've seen this. I mean, we hear about this, you know, with, you know, sort of backward uh, resource nations that uh, are, you know, addicted to pumping oil and therefore don't uh, develop the rest of the economy. I mean, we're even seeing, say, Saudi Arabia struggling with the implications, we would say, of the resource curse. But this is a reality. Uh, we think it's not wrong to apply it as a way to think about a danger or a threat to states uh, given these massive uh, resource uh, booms and busts. Uh, yeah, I think maybe wealth comes too easy, so muscles atrophy, right? Uh, in any event, though, uh, it's a well-recognized dynamic, uh, and it's a worry about, I think, for some communities. Uh, Texas has interestingly kind of diversified since the 1980s. It, you know, just hammered uh, with the oil price crash in the 1980s. I remember that my mom lost her job because of that. A lot, of, a lot of people did. Uh, and now Houston, yeah, it's got some problems in the uh, energy management uh, 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 part of the economy and, and energy services. But the state is not completely losing momentum this time. So I think that's a state uh, that has diversified and come quite a long way since 1980. And we talk about maybe one tool that has been helpful to them in that. But, uh, um, you know, so the resource curse is something that needs to be guarded against. And economic diversification is one of the goals that you need to do that. Mark, let's take a quick break here uh, for our coffee break segment in which we will meet uh, one of your colleagues in the Metropolitan Policy Program, Adi Tomer. And here we'll play the coffee break segment that will drop in. We've already recorded it. And now back to the discussion with uh, Mark Miro. Mark, you talked uh, before the break about the oscillations in revenue and the paper that we're talking about that you co-authored with Devashree Saha um, has an idea uh, for a permanent trust fund. 
What is the permanent trust fund, and, and can you talk more about the problem that it attempts to solve? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the idea here is you know, building on what a few states and some nations have done is to see if you could find a way to smooth out the cycles. Uh, essentially, can you convert volatile near-term revenues from the extraction cycle into stable, longer-term sources of investment funding for building a more sustainable economy. Uh, some states and some nations have thought about it that way. So our idea is that states should create special trust funds to be funded through revenues uh, derived from the severance tax or other uh, fees they may uh, obtain from fossil fuel uh, exploitation that will then be invested or used to you know, create income to support investments uh, in the longer-term good of the state. We would have some ideas about what those expenditures should be. But the first principle is of smoothing uh, revenue flows from the boom and bust cycle into a steadier platform for investment. Given the dangers, I mean, the, the resource curse is certainly tied up with the boom and bust uh, cycle. So our further idea, these investments should be made the specific goal in you know mitigating or offsetting uh, or uh, the boom and bust cycle and and in economic diversification. So especially in created that high innovation, higher skills, low carbon economy. Uh, so this uh, trust fund would have the goal of offsetting the boom bust cycle. But what are some of the the specific characteristics of such a fund that kind of sets it apart from? other kinds of special funds a, a government might set up. Right. Um, you know, I think, so clear governance, clear definition of revenue, deposits, and withdrawal rules, a smart investment strategy, I think it's important. Now a couple of folk that are important, a focus on economic transformation. So this shouldn't just be an accumulated slush fund to then be recycled back into you know, bailing out uh, uh, particular government programs or, uh, you know, carrying out uh, special ideas from special people. This should be a focus on this systematic, uh, you know, uh, diversification. And then finally, transparency on pol and political insulation. And you can certainly imagine that any accumulation of funds uh, – especially tied to this kind of boom and bust cycle, could be a very attractive, you know, target for uh, legislators to, you know, bail out the, bail out problems in the budget. Yeah, what you would know, keep a politician from raiding the kitty on these trust funds? Does it take a constitutional amendment for the state? Certainly that's one uh, uh, tool that has been utilized and you're right, it is not a hypothetical problem that exactly that has happened, uh, you know, the sort of uh, looting of funds that do exist or and, and or simply through the revenue cycle, spending it all now, which basically winds up uh, leading to just spending to offset some of the disruptions in the short term. So you're absolutely right that this insulation and transparency and then probably constitutionally mandated uh, uses uh, 
are, are, is a critical feature here. You mentioned that some countries and even some states have funds sort of like this. What are some of those examples? Yeah, Norway, uh, it may be predictable. Uh, you know, the Scandinavian nations do a lot of things uh, that uh, Americans sort of admire, I guess. Uh, but Chile, Israel, and Kuwait have funds like this. In various forms, New Mexico, West Virginia, and, and just be, and Wyoming have created recently uh, some some uh, funds like this. And then I think Texas uh, has something called the Texas Permanent School Fund and its Permanent University Fund, not based on uh, oil and gas uh, or petroleum resources, but on land sales uh, in the West, uh, as you know, uh, given your, where you're from, uh, you know, many states control vast uh, territories that they sell off or can use for various public purposes. Uh, but the revenues, it's a similar principle. They have done a very uh, good job managing the revenues of land sales and pouring them into, you know, for instance, building important assets in the university system. Yeah, I remember growing up uh, in Texas, hearing about the Texas Land Commissioner as a very, very powerful uh, statewide office. Uh, Mark, let's move on to sort of the um, the the bigger picture, the longer term picture. You and other colleagues in Metro have, have often talked about inclusive economies, higher skilled jobs, um, innovation. Um, and decarbonization. So can you um, speak to, um, first of all, inclusive economic development and how these trust funds relate to uh, that concept? Uh, you know, I mean, inclusive economic development is critical. Uh, um, and it's about widening the circle of prosperity uh, to more people. Uh, you know, I think uh, inclusive economy uh, is uh, is a highly innovative one, but it's also one that uh, provides uh, many opportunities for building skills, and it's a sustainable one. And I think sustainability is both about, I think, smoothing out the boom and bust cycles that are disruptive to people, communities, and the state economy, but also uh, it's about a, a clean economy. Uh, uh, you know, we've we've talked at various times at the Metro pro Program about you know innovation, skills, and sustainability as three pillars. Uh, sustainability uh, and decarbonization is critical and often requires investment, um, whether for technology investments or deployment of new technologies. So. Um, at a time where there's likely limitations on uh, federal funding, uh, states are going to have to do more on all of these fronts. And uh, you could say it would be uh, terrible to waste a crisis. It would also be terrible to waste these periodic windfalls that states receive through uh, uh, the boom and bust cycle on on resources. What if what if some of those benefits could be channeled into uh, uh, decarbonizing the economy too? And some states, I think, are doing that. So this is, in the simplest way, a resource, uh, uh, a revenue source uh, for making critical investments. Let me follow up on uh, decarbonization. Uh, people think about fracking as this. Uh, um, 
kind of environmentally damaging process and it's still extracting oil and natural gas from the ground. I know it's not coal, but it's still, um, you know, it's, it's still, a, I guess, a carbon-based. How is this related to decarbonization, in other words? I think, um, you know, regardless of one's, um, you know, views of fracking, uh, we can agree that there are, you know, significant potential revenues uh, that ought to be channeled and ought to be, I would say, you know, directed towards uh, moving towards cleaner uh, uh, sources of energy going forward. So, you know, one of the great problems uh, that we face is uh, investment to create, you know, invent and deploy uh, clean or zero carbon technology. So we think this is, uh, you know, an extremely uh, valuable use maybe one of several uses of these funds. Mark, it's a very uh, fascinating report that you and Devashree uh, put together. It's, uh, it's, it's something that I think of as kind of classic Brookings. You identified a problem and you've come up with a, a great solution. How did you come to this um, topic and this idea? Uh, well, uh, uh, abiding interest in energy, uh, fascination with the fracking phenomena, uh, but uh, on a deeper uh, level for me, you know, I think it was growing up in the West like you uh, and really participating in boom and bust economies. I lived for a decade in, in Arizona. Uh, uh, it was less resource intensive though. We watched uh, incredible booms and busts in the, in the copper industry in southern Arizona, but also demographic booms. Uh, you know, I think this is a Deeply American rhythm, and I think in those in in my time living in Arizona, there's constant discussion about sustainable growth as opposed to boom and bust growth. Uh, so I think it's a fascinating uh, topic, and I think if we can, you know, trying to think practically about how you might create a a pathway from a boom and bust cycle to a more sustainable one uh, with real tools, uh, you know, is really worth doing. So I think it kind of resonated for me given that that background in the West. Well, Mark, I'm going to thank you for your time today and talking about this report. Great. Thanks. You can find the report by Mark Miro and Devashree Saha. It's titled Permanent Trust Funds, Funding Economic Change with Fracking Revenues on our website at brookings.edu. Finally today, meet Jerusalem Siba, a scholar in the Africa Growth Initiative here at Brookings, who talks about her research and find out why she's reading the novel Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Hi, my name is Jerusalem Siba. I am a research uh, scholar at uh, the Africa Growth Initiative Unit of Global Economy and Development Program. I recently joined Brookings Institution in uh, late 2015. I grew up in Ethiopia, Addis Ababa, the capital city of Ethiopia. I did my undergrad in Addis Ababa University and left for Sweden uh, to pursue uh, a grad school. Uh, and I also worked there as a postdoctoral uh, research fellow at the University of Gothenburg. I didn't really know at the outset, from the outset, that I would be a scholar or a researcher, but I always knew that I would like to be an influencer and a person uh, 
who would like to question social norms and push boundaries. So being a researcher has given me the opportunity to think about uh, pressing social issues and definitely joining the Brookings Institution has uh, given me the platform uh, to, to impact policy on the ground as well as uh, it has helped me to focus on the policy implication and message of the research that I conduct. So in my research so far, I have dealt with uh, African economies where I think uh, most important issues that we are facing today with regards to African economies is uh, having visionary and effective leadership as well as policy making. So having a vision helps uh, to have a long-term perspective of development planning. Uh, I think in the, currently in this day and age, uh, it's uh, easier to come up uh, and formulate policy, right policy sets, but uh, effectively implementing them on the ground so that we change lives is one of the critical issues that we are facing today. At AGI, we are basically involved in two broad research themes. One is maintaining a resilient economic growth in Africa, and the other is building, uh, broadening the economic um, benefits so that many more within the country uh, of uh, uh, the African continent benefit from the economic growth. So within that framework, I have I'm involved in three um, uh, research projects dealing with uh, food security, industrial development, and gender and entrepreneurship. So with regards to uh, food security, uh, we're trying to investigate the role of increasing agricultural productivity of smallholder farmers in Africa, as well as expansion of social uh, safety nets uh, for individuals affected by food insecurity and uh, increasing investment on key agricultural inputs such as infrastructure uh, and their implication on uh, achieving food and nutrition security in uh, uh, Africa. So with regards to industrial development, uh, we think of uh, the role of increasing Africa's involvement in global value chain and international trade uh, on promoting industrial development in Africa and also the role of domestic capacity building such as investment in on infrastructure uh, and their role on again achieving industrial development in Africa. Uh, and the last point, uh, the last uh, theme of research that I'm involved in is on gender and its intersection with in entrepreneurship where we try to identify constraining factors for female-led enterprises and uh, to help promote uh, the design of um, gender-sensitive development policies. So I just moved to Washington, D.C., and uh, I usually like to uh, understand the heartbeat of the society I live in. So to help me achieve that, I'm currently reading the book uh, called Americana, by a Nigerian writer, Chimamanda Adichie. Uh, it's a fiction which describes about, talks about um, an, an African journey to the U.S. and uh, the, her and 
her experience um, uh, in the U.S. society. It's a fiction, but it raises uh, many important social aspects, such as race, race relations and migration. Uh, on work-related reading, I'm uh, currently developing a strong interest in understanding Rwanda. Uh, so I'm uh, so the book by Patricia and Andrea uh, under the title Rwanda Inc. is on uh, my book uh, reading list, which describes about the journey of the country from genocide to uh, becoming one of the fastest growing in Africa. So I would uh, welcome our listeners to join me in understanding Rwanda and their journey to achieving a resilient economy. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. Well, it's a time of transition here at the podcast. My producer, Zach Colzer, has left Brookings to embark upon a new adventure somewhere to the west of Washington, D.C. I've trusted Zach with my voice since my first interview in August 2013, and I'm proud to have collaborated with him on nearly 100 episodes of this podcast. Thanks, Zach, and happy trails to you until we meet again. And so I welcome our new producer, Mark Holscher, who has been a part of the Brookings Cafeteria family already and now becomes the chief architect of the high-quality sounds that you hear on this show every week. My thanks also to the rest of the great team here, Carissa Nitschi, Bill Finan, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, Rebecca Weiser, and our intern, Sarah Abdel-Rahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. You can send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time... I'm Fred Dews.